Hey guys, my name is Ben Berman and welcome to the Starting It Up podcast where I interview all types of entrepreneurs uncovering actionable steps and inspiration that you can use to build your business, your side hustle, whatever it is that you're trying to create and live the life you've always wanted. Hey everybody, how's it going? Uh, this episode is a little different. I actually got the chance to speak with both co-founders of Mainvest, Nick Matthews and Ben Blyden. They're, they're college friends and former roommates who after going down different paths post-grad ended up reconnecting and co-founding this company together. Ben went down the financial track, you know, being an analyst at companies like Brown Brothers Harriman, Grant Thornton uh, and others while Nick joined Uber as an early employee leading their launch efforts in the New England market. Mainvest brings crowdfunding to Main Street by allowing people to invest in and support the small businesses and entrepreneurs in their communities. From breweries to escape rooms, Mainvest allows you to have a larger stake in your environment and help the companies around you grow. We discuss topics like the future of small business in America, the importance of community, how equity crowdfunding actually creates incentives for consumers, and of course, what it was like to be an early employed Uber uh, back then when it was just getting started and now that it's about to ipo uh, as well as many more topics hope you guys enjoyed here it goes hey guys how's it going welcome to the podcast today we have on ben blyden and nick matthews who are the co-founders of mainvest uh, i'll hand it over to you guys um you know you guys met at umass i went to umass so let's start right there you know talk about your uh, experience how you guys met what you guys did after school and you know, how that led to you starting Mainvest together. For sure. Yeah. I mean, and thanks again for having us. Um, how we met, I think it was actually a Craigslist ad when uh, we were looking for <laughs> a fifth roommate. And I'm not sure if it like uh, was compliant with uh, housing regulations, but it was basically Probably like, not. Uh, you know, looking for someone must love third eye blind, I think was actually a central part of it. <laughs> um, and, you know, we had, Lived in this house for about a year. Uh, ben was a transfer from URI, University of Rhode Island, yeah. And like reached out, we hopped on the phone, and it was just kind of you know, a, a great culture fit for <laughs> In, uh, instant friends for college, instant friends. Uh, you know, we were both musicians at the time, and so there was a lot of uh, you know commonalities there. And we moved into a house off campus. Uh, and where at? I was right, right on Sunderland Road, which is oh yeah, Sunderland, like a harp, uh, which <laughs> is like a nice little Irish bar run by a guy named Harpo. Uh, it, you know, always gave us something to do if we didn't have anything else to do. Learned a lot of trivia there. Learned a lot of trivia, <laughs> great trivia night. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Ben, ben and I uh, became very, very close friends during that time, uh, and then you know when we both graduated. He was, uh, you know, finance track and went on to doing some really cool things in finance that I can, like, talk to way less qualified than he can talk. <laughs> I ended up going on uh, to launch Uber in Boston in, like, October 2011 uh, and did that for six and a half years before this. And, you know, we talked in and out during that time but you know we kind of like gone in those separate paths and end up reconnecting um with the initial ideas around main vests in thinking through these changes and regulations that came with the jobs act title three 
you know, me, I was very excited about this idea of like, how can you let communities actually invest in that community outside of, you know, taxes and municipal bonds. The regulations seem to be a good framework to allow for like localized investing into like the small business space. And my challenge was, you know, I was heavy in like ops and strategy, like launching Uber, um, had a lot of experience in marketplaces, but I, I knew very, very little about complex finance. And one of the first people I thought of was like, what is Ben Blyden doing? (laughs) And so we reconnected there and, you know, a few years after the initial conversations ended up leaving our jobs to launch this, but that's, that's my half of the path, Ben. Yeah. So, um, I mean, while Nick was, uh, working at Uber, um, I started my career out at, um, like a boutique consulting firm doing private business valuation. Um, where, you know, I, I got a pretty, uh, good understanding of small business financials, the challenges they face and the upside that they can see. Um, I then moved my career over to, uh, Grant Thornton, which is an accounting firm. I was not in the accounting department and I am not an accountant. Um, despite what some people do think. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I worked in the uh, valuation department there doing um, valuation of complex financial instruments like uh, debt and equity securities, derivatives, um, and private businesses as well. And when Nick kind of came to me saying like, hey, like there are these awesome new regulations for how non-accredited investors can invest in private businesses for the first time in a really, really long time. Um, how can we apply these to small businesses? Um, you know, I started to see like how my particular skill set um, in small businesses and valuation and uh, complex and simple and standard um, in financial instruments um, could really, you know, help figure out better ways for small businesses to raise capital um, while aligning the interests of themselves. Um, their customers, their investors, and really not giving the small businesses like too, too much risk. I mean, I think at the core, we all kind of believe and understand that small business entrepreneurs are really taking on probably a little bit too much risk when they decide to go out and start a small business. And we can always get into more of that later. Gotcha. Cool. So yeah, it definitely seems like your your backgrounds together really, you know, enable you to, to do this business. Um, so my follow-up question would be now like, uh, you know, you were coming from, you know, a larger financial company, Grant Thornton, Ben and, and Nick, you were coming from Uber, um, like as an early employee there, which, you know, is, is a whole story uh, in and of itself. But uh, so why were you guys passionate or so passionate about, you know, small business um, investing, like someone opening up a pizzeria or someone, you know, starting uh, like an arcade or something like like where did that interest come from? Um, because it doesn't seem like, you know, from from your uh, professional backgrounds, like you guys worked in that space. Well, I mean, from my side, I, I think it's the parallels are like a lot clearer than you think. When you think about Uber, especially when we when it, like we launched it originally, uh, and this was like before UberX, you know, this was only a black car product um, using like licensed livery drivers. Every single black car driver we were talking to was a small business owner themselves. And it was, you know, early on, obviously, like not scale at all. So having these one-on-one conversations, trying to explain the value propositions, understanding the challenges. And, you know, with, with Uber, it was really about supply utilization where, 
you know, they have their like book of business and, um, you know, clients that they're doing like multi-hour reservations for, and then a ton of dead time. And I think the magic of Uber early on was like, if you can better utilize that supply during that downtime, you're able to lower the cost for consumers to be able to experience like higher quality transportation. And then on the small business owner driver side, the ability to generate incremental revenue uh, when otherwise you'd just be kind of sitting around waiting for your next job. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, as a part of that, like early on, I, I would say like you know, the first 200, 250 drivers, like if, if, I, I still have amazing experiences in Boston where I'm walking down the street and I get a honk and the, like a car pulls over and like I walks out of an escalator. He's like, Nick, what's going on? It, it, <laughs> it was because we had, you know, this really strong relationship with these guys and gals. And in doing so, we also, you know, really understood that they were, you know, it, it's not just like a labor force, like these are small business owners themselves. And a lot of them have like other jobs and have other like entrepreneurial endeavors that they had done. You know, I think I could think of like at least 15, 20 off the top of my head that like also had, you know, restaurants or, um, dry cleaning services like small businesses that they ran like on the side and in seeing that like it, it was kind of a unique situation where you know you wouldn't assume that but we did have a lot of interactions and understanding the challenge of that and access to capital you know was a challenge that was constantly talked about that we at the time like it wasn't like we we're trying to solve it but in seeing the you know, regulations change and realizing they could fix it. I think that early time at Uber with those relationships was hugely beneficial to being able to better understand that environment uh, early on. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense now because I think I think most people actually forget, and I forgot that like before Uber, there were just like independent you know cab companies, um, which were all like you know for the most part small businesses. Cool. So, um, so yeah, could you kind of explain now like exactly how Mainvest works? Say I'm someone who wants to invest in someone starting a a local business, right? A restaurant. Um, what exactly w would happen when I give them the money? Um, you know how like what does that process look like? And then you know what kind of a return can I expect from this? Uh, like how does that work? Sure. Yeah. So I think like the most important thing to remember is when you invest in um, a company on Mainvest, your money, it, it first goes into an FDIC insured escrow account where the money is held until the business hits its target. And we um, try really hard to make sure that the targets that companies are setting is like the actual adequate amount of capital uh, that they would need to, to reasonably say what they need to do. Um, and so you don't really have to worry about like if there's only, you know, maybe $10,000 in the business right now and they need to get $200,000. It's not like that money just goes straight to the business. So it sits right. in escrow until they hit their amount. Yeah. And you like even point back to that, the experience is basically like, because they're like small business shark tank, where you go into the platform and you see, um, you know, local, semi-local opportunities of businesses that are looking to take investment from their community. You go into one of those pages and, you know, I, I think the, you know, most relevant comp outside of the security side of it would be like Kickstarter, where it like it is crowdfunding. You have like an offering page, and there is you know information about who's running this business, um, their mission, their goals, and kind of that like 
the narrative of why this business is valuable and why you you should invest in it. And then outside of that, the big difference is there is also you know the disclosures and more of the like investment angle uh, data in order to properly evaluate that. And those that anything from like historical tax returns and financials to projected financials, COGS business model, um, you know history of founders, past experience, all that kind of stuff. And so all of that is disseminated to a potential investor for them to evaluate. And then based on you know, their like evaluation of the opportunity, you can choose to invest as little as a hundred bucks, as much as the regulations allow for each individual, which is, you know, a, like semi-complex, but pretty easy at the end of the day, balance of uh, your income and net worth uh, for your annual investment limits through regulation crowdfunding. And where it kind of plays out is you are looking at the terms for this offering. You're looking at their projected financials. And based on those terms, you clearly understand that upon investing in this business, if they're successful, you're paid back X percent of top line revenue up until Y dollar amount is hit. You know, and when we think about this asset class, which is really how we think about it, where it's, you know, you think about revenue backed securities that are resting somewhere between the, you know, market returns of like the S&P, you go on to the TV Ameritrade rate account or whatever, and are, are looking at like blue chip stock and you can invest in there. And then, you know, the more sophisticated like venture style, like I'm looking for, you know, 25X or 10, 20X returns. Sorry, the, the Uber and me <laughs> balances. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I see 10X returns. Um, you know, we're looking at something where you want to be targeting a risk adjusted uh, return that like can be somewhere in the you know 10 to 22% IRR range um, for these businesses. And I think what's unique about it is when it's tied to revenue, you know, your ability to affect the outcome of that is different. Whereas, you know, say we hire five people, we buy five MacBook Pros, like I'm not running to run into my like broker from like to check the ticker price of Apple. Like I know that that, that doesn't matter. But when you're investing in a business in your community that you're going to, and you're getting a dollar for dollar return on every coffee you buy at that coffee shop or every birthday party your friend throws at that bowling alley, um, is this unique ability for communities to actually start to take control and have an effect on what happens in their community and the economic development. Cool. Yeah. So that was a lot there. I think. So that makes that makes. Yeah. It's it's uh, it's interesting. I think that you know from from what I heard, um, it sounds like you guys really work closely with the businesses that are being onboarded to this platform to you know help them uh, essentially you know handhold them and walk them through exactly how this would work. And then I think the biggest you know difference between something like a main vest and you know an equity uh, crowdfunding platform would be that you know they don't actually get equity in the company. Um, if if I understood that correctly, they would just get like a certain percentage, you know, tied to revenue, which uh, for a lot of people, um, you know, might even be more attractive because it's a lot clearer. And and the last thing that you said is like so valuable because uh, that's kind of where this entire marketplace stems from. It's like if I invest money into a local store, I'm gonna go there instead of going to a competitor uh, that's another local store, or instead of going to like you know giant company like like a Walmart or something. Um, h- how have you seen like I know it's still early for you guys, but how have you seen, you know, uh, 
consumers' behavior start to change and, and areas start to change uh, for the companies that have you know gone through this this main vest uh, process and raised capital this way? Well, I, I think like the most compelling stat that we've seen is like on average, you know, eighty to eighty-five percent of the investors in these businesses are resting within like a two to three mile radius of the actual brick and mortar location of the business. And where that is super compelling, and again, it's early, um, mm -hmm. but where, where that is super compelling is these, like it's showing that these are the people that are going to be participating in the business and are able to affect and share it. And you know, they talk to their neighbor, their neighbor can also uh, go there. And you know, it's not like you have just a, bunch of like private equity or angel investors in like Silicon Valley that are looking at a brewery in Brighton and are just like, we're going to buy this one out kind of thing. You know, <laughs> it is the community voting their approval and showing that support and where that becomes kind of magical in a sense of like the actual, like, you know, theoretical underwriting of these investments is you, know, you can talk about traditional bank underwriting processes, but you go to a bank, you can say like, I want to launch a ketchup flavored popsicle stand. And they're like, that's great. Like, you know, how many beds, how many baths and how far are you along in your mortgage payment? So that we know that what we have to collateralize against this, because you know, we're the single, uh, we're, we're taking all the risk. Right. A bank's not able to diversify their risk for investing in one business. So we have, we're able to diversify it amongst a whole bunch of people that really care about it including family and friends and potential customers and current customers for existing businesses. And what that does is like, if you think about the current flow of, you know, getting money and then launching and trying to figure out whether or not like you're a fit, it moves the market validation phase much, er phase, sorry, much earlier in the process. And so, you know, a business is looking to raise $75,000. That's what they need to get off the ground they're getting that from the community or they're not, but if they're getting that from the community, it's because the community is saying that they want this there. And that to us was one of the most compelling aspects of why, why we felt like this had to happen. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I guess like, you know, now we're, we're in this stage of, of the economy here, especially in the U.S., where giant companies uh, like an Amazon are essentially, you know, taking over, you know, areas, uh, geographical, um, you know, economical. Where do you see, like, how scalable do you think something like this is? Because a lot of people are worried that, you know, some of these companies are getting too big that are, you know, essentially putting smaller, you know, businesses out of business. Do you think that this is going to help them combat that? And do you think that, you know, there will always be a place for, for small businesses? Or do you, like, eventually see that, you know, the vast majority of, of companies will be uh, some part of a uh, conglomerate? No, I, I, I do very much believe in the former, not the latter. And I, I think there are specific types of businesses that the mm -hmm. angle um, doesn't work as well for. And, you know, not to use just a very recent points to, to justify my case, but like, I mean, I'm not sure if you saw it, but I think it was in like the last week or so, like press is kind of broken that Amazon's pulling out of their brick and mortar strategy because they weren't able to execute it properly and well. And they weren't able to compete on the local level because when you get there, you know, the, the value proposition of locality is identity. And I, I think that's something that 
people are realizing more and more, and we're kind of at a phase right now that that's kind of a, a resurgence of this idea of like what makes a community local and what what makes local good, and it's the fact that you know that capital and that economic development is staying in the community where. You know, the alternative of having Amazon come, like say Amazon wanted to launch a store in like a suburb of Boston and the profits there are going back to San Francisco and, you know, they're kind of cutting uh, uh, ways of maximizing profit. Like that, that doesn't actually help the local community and the short term gains of say 10, 15% price discounts don't outweigh the long term damage of having Salem, Massachusetts say, you know, where we're, where we're headquartered, like become not Salem, just become like Boston 1.76, right? <laughs> gotcha. Cool. So, yeah, I mean, that's a great point. And I think that um, like when you when you think back about it, like ever, you know, early human history and all that, like these these communities and tribes have always like centered around, you know, points of business, like like a general store and, and things like that. And and although it seems like we're, we're moving away from it, like you said, I think there's always a place for it. Um, and and now to kind of talk a little bit more about like where Mainvest is right now. Uh, it looks like you guys are only operating in Massachusetts. Um, what are you like? What, what have you seen like results wise there? And then uh, what's the plan for expanding outside uh, of that state and, and into other parts of this country? Yeah, I mean, well, we launched, uh, you know, the end of October. So we're definitely super, super early. Yeah. Um, what's, I think, been very compelling, we've raised in you know, a few months we launched hundreds of thousands of dollars in capital for, um, you know, small businesses across like, a variety of categories, like from breweries to hair salons to noodle bars, to escape rooms. And, you know, that, like, the amount of diversification in different types of small businesses there is, like, hugely compelling. And seeing that, it, like, it's not just, you know, a, a way for breweries to get money or a way for yeah. like, a certain subset of it. Um, in terms of scale, you know, I, like, the regulatory framework that we operate on, you know, we are regulated by FINRA. Like, we've gone through the approval process. Uh, there are... 40-ish companies across the U.S. that have that designation, uh, it's a federal exemption. And so we are in no way, shape, or form limited by like regulatory reasons to just be in Massachusetts. But the importance of locality to us is the driving factor behind this. And so you know, we launched here and are very focused on here to show that. You know, I'm excited for next steps in terms of expansion. And I think that we we have a lot of different thoughts on how we want to do that. We've had a lot of experience in doing localized expansion of an operational marketplace with Uber, where Uber, as you know, it had its initial launch strategy was taking you know, these cities and like putting in local teams in place mm -hmm. uh, to actually understand the city and provide the biggest value proposition to that city. And like you know, it wasn't like we were shipping people out from San Francisco into Boston. Like I was from Boston, yeah. I, I launched Boston. Um, you know, our Nashville team was started by people that like knew Nashville and lived in Nashville. Mm -hmm. I think that there are like aspects of that that we're very excited to have those learnings and be able to replicate as we look to expand. And there are aspects of that we there were also learnings for, you know, there are ways to do it better. And having those learnings of how not to do it are also hugely valuable in the sense of expanding. 
But I, I think that when we look at our like next few years trajectory, you know, we expect to grow out beyond Massachusetts. Um, but I think that the regions are going to be defined by early interest and rather than like try to fabricate or mandate where we should be going, um, we're going to let businesses tell us where they need us and, and go from there. Yeah. How, so how, uh, how do you actually tell that? Like, how do you be able to tell where businesses need you? Uh, and then also, can you kind of, um, put everyone out there who's listening, like in the shoes of a business owner, who's thinking about going on Mainvest? What, um, like what are the like the biggest value props for them? And in terms of this marketplace, has it been easier to onboard the businesses or to actually then find the investors to invest in those businesses? Yeah, totally. So I think that um, in terms of like, how, how do we know where the business demand is? I mean, we've, we've received some interest from uh, out of state businesses and, you know, we're evaluating each of those opportunities as they come in. Um, and it's, it's definitely, we're going to see more of that and it's going to be interesting going mm-hmm. forward. Um, and there's a lot of exciting areas um, where those businesses will come from. Um, you know, we hope to be getting press in the greater New England area um, and through word of mouth so people have the opportunities to hear from us. Um, and then what was the next part to your question? Yeah, yeah. So in terms of like onboarding the actual businesses um, and like yeah, what has yeah. been, yeah, what's the value prop? And then like what's more difficult, like getting the businesses or, or getting the investors? Yeah, I mean, you got to have, uh, this isn't even really a chicken in the egg scenario that I look at because yeah. you have to have the businesses before investors can come on the platform. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's always going to be that duality of having a marketplace and having to fill both sides of supply and demand. Um, And we've had successes in both getting the businesses um, and getting the investors to fill them up. Um, A large part of it is, you know, making sure that the businesses are good businesses um, that pass our due diligence screening um, and that they do have some investors that are going to want to invest in the businesses to kind of get the ball rolling and uh, get some momentum in the offerings. Gotcha. Cool. And so, you know, when it comes to small businesses, uh, there's there's these statistics that say, like, you know, many of them or, or most of them end up failing after a few years. Um, like where in, in terms of like, you know, when you connect them to the investors, like how does that pl- like play a factor? Like what are the expectations for someone putting money in um, that, you know, might never get that money back, uh, especially if it's like a local business and they and they might know the owner and the people who work there. Like, how does that play out in, in this kind of a scenario? You know, I, I always love talking through this one because it, it definitely has come up. And I think the the thing I've I've realized in thinking through it is there's definitely this misconception about small business failure rate because if you think about small business failure rate as opposed to like early stage startup, like tech startup failure rate, mm-hmm. it's actually much lower. Yet people like don't really think about that. That you just go with the kind of bylines of like ninety nine percent of restaurants fail, and so like obviously eighty percent of statistics are made up. But what you know the importance is the definition of failure. Like over a long enough timeline, like everyone's life expectancy goes to zero. You know, evaluating a investment, it's yes, looking for business success. But when you're thinking through the debt side investment around, you know, not looking at 
an equity, a potential equity return five to seven years down the road based on a successful exit, you're looking at quarterly returns based on top line revenue. You know, there is a disjointment between like, is the business going to fail in 10 years? And what is the definition of failure? Is it just going to like move on and like people are going to do another business? You know, restaurants have, uh, I think like shelf lives of around 10 years, it's called seat fatigue in the industry. Uh, but when you're thinking about it as an investment, like are they going to be able to successfully pay back <laughs> their investors? And is that a one-to-one -one with, you know, traditional fail rate based on those stats? Not at all. So I think that first there's an education process around, you know, the 99% of restaurants fail stat that is just not patently, like it's just patent <laughs> false, right? And then beyond that, it's like looking at the projection for revenue for this business that in any situation, you're investing in an early stage company, that is a risky investment. And the importance is designing structured returns that are designed to wait for that risk and put you in a situation where risk adjusted, like you end up having the opportunity to, you know, I guess like seek alpha and beat the market. Uh, but when we look at the businesses on our platform, we are, you know, in a way a gatekeeper and we're not qualifying any investment on our marketplace over any other investment. But we are looking at them in terms of, you know, what is your projected revenue? What is your projected growth rate? How does that align with, you know, standard like market stats for those categories of businesses? What are, what are your COGS? Like, are you a, you know, natural grocery store that's saying you're going to have 80% profit margin? Like that, <laughs> that industry just doesn't work like that. Those are some, those are some red flags. And, and we, we involve ourselves in that process. Um, when we work with businesses and think about, um, you know, the kind of opportunities we want to bring to consumers. And at the end of the day, where we're going to, you know, be able to continue to prove this value is when these initial investors are getting paid back and are getting returns that are in, you know, that targeted IRR range and then are seeing more opportunities that they're able to continue to diversify and invest in. And is every business on the main invest platform five years from now going to have succeeded? I hope not, because in that case, we have definitely over-indexed on our risk assessment of these businesses. Like, we shouldn't be the ones deciding. The businesses are going out there with their business models, with their projections, um, and going to the communities. And the communities, in a way, are like putting their money where their mouth is and investing in businesses that they want in their community. Gotcha. And just to just to get a so that's that's a great point. I think. Like obviously, uh, you know, like you said, a lot of these stats are just thrown around, and and for you know different reasons, it, they don't actually paint the uh, the an accurate picture. Uh, so just to understand, like the point of view of the investor, um, this this might be too early to have the actual number, but what is the projected uh, if you have this number payback period for someone who puts in um, an investment? Like I don't know if it's different for each one, but like when can they start to you know I think if everything goes well to get their money back? I would like to encourage um, potential investors that are listening to this to go to our website, look at the businesses, look at the revenue that the businesses have projected, um, and then take the terms of the investment vehicles, which is like the percentage of revenue and um, the cap that the investment goes up to, and project how long it would take for that investment to get paid back. And then really the question is, well, there's really two questions then, like one, like what's the likelihood of the business meeting, um, not meeting or exceeding their projections. Um, there we have a Q and a 
feature where you can directly ask the businesses any questions you have about their business model or projections. Um, and then two, are the businesses gonna have the solvency and liquidity to actually um, pay back their uh, loans, loan repayments, um, and you can also look at their projected profitability and ask them any questions about that. I mean, high level, and I'm not speaking about any specific business, but like we're looking, and the businesses are looking, and the investors are looking, and what we believe is like the three to seven year payback range um, with a mean somewhere in the middle of that. Um, and it's it's definitely going to depend on the business and how they want to set their terms, um, how ambitious they want to be, um, and you know how long. Some business we talked to a lot of business owners. Some of them don't want debt on their books for that long, um, and some of them see the value of having the uh, community be involved for a while and want it to be on there for a long time. Gotcha. Yeah, great answer. And I mean, I'm looking at it right now, and you know, this seems like. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty sophisticated stuff, you know, like for, it might be a little difficult for like the average person to, to fully understand this. Um, so like in, in terms of, you know, education on a, you know, on a wide basis, like what's the best way for, for someone who wants to get into, you know, this kind of investing to, to really, you know, savvy up and, and really understand like exactly what they're getting in. Um, just because like, you know, definitely there's there's people who might get in too early, um, not really understand all the risks, and then, you know, might just ruin the entire thing for them once, like, they don't get the, the return that they expect. Right. I think that, you know, if you go through the site and go through an investment process, you know, we, we definitely over-index at this point, I would even say, on, like, education around risk. You know, there are multiple points where you are checking off something that is like i may lose some if not all of my money and i need to be comfortable doing that before i do this uh because it is important to like to understand that like these aren't guaranteed returns and like no returns are i mean let's go like municipal bonds or uh war bonds maybe but the the importance for like early understanding is that the actual core concept of it is super simple it's you're getting a percentage of the money that these people make usually quarterly paid back from the point that they start making money and like the big difference between that and equity is you know of people that invested in like that first cohort of businesses on our system those businesses are generating revenue this quarter and so are going awesome. to like, be paying back next quarter that first like their first payment and then every three months from that point until either the business fails or exceeds its obligation, you're getting capital, and uh, like until you're getting the maximum return, um, and that's different business to business. But you know we're looking at total ROI, like projected ROIs in the ranges of like you know 1.3 to 1.7 on average. So you know for a business that has like a 1.5x cap on their return, you invest. $10,000 over the course of that investment, um, you will get objected $15,000. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's compelling. And yes, the faster that the business accelerates their revenue, the faster you get paid back, and that affects your IRR and your ability to, you know, say invest in that brewery and then, you know, tell your friends, every single person that you get to go there, buy a beer, <laughs> buy a growler. Yeah is accelerating that revenue. Uh, it goes right back to you. 
and, and it like that's the magic and that that's what really excites us about it yeah i yeah and i'm, I'm looking at it right now and you guys have educational material you definitely try to uh to make it as easy as possible and and like you said like the magic is like I, I just think it's gonna be super exciting when like someone walks outside and they have all these options for where to eat and they're like we have to go to this place and they're like and their friends are like why and they're like I, I put money in this place you know and it's like right now the people who are doing this are just like already wealthy you know they've made a lot of money in in something and and now they get to invest um, in these like private uh, you know uh, small businesses and when everyone's gonna be able to do it I, I think it's just gonna be like so interesting to see like and it's gonna it's also kind of going to be like a status symbol too, in a way like, Oh, I put money in here. I put money in there. Like, I, I don't know. It's just going to create this like very interesting, um, dynamic that, that we haven't seen yet. Um, so for everyone out there who's listening, uh, if you're interested, if you're, especially if you're in the Massachusetts area, you can go to mainvest.com to look at all the companies that are currently raising money, you know, check them out. You got some great businesses there. Um, and, uh, actually Nick, right, right before uh, we go, I'd love to ask, I feel like I have to ask you this question. So, you know, you were an early employee at Uber. Um, you were there for like a little over six years. Like, how does it feel now to, you know, be got be like out of it and, and knowing that, you know, Uber's going public this year at, you know, people are saying, you know, anywhere from like, I, th I think the la latest number was like 60 billion to, to like a hundred billion. Uh, how does that feel for you? I mean, in thinking through again. Six and a half years was it was a long time and from from a very early stage company like and the thing about like I joined Uber like a year after Uber was founded right so yeah <laughs> it wasn't as early stage as what we've done with this in the past mm -hmm. six months but it was super early it, like I think that I I feel like five years younger now than I did like the month before I left Uber because it, it did grow so big and you miss like the the magic of actually building something and you're just yeah. going like like you know small iterations and like trying to trying to control like a 15 to 18,000 employee like monster of <laughs> uh, whereas early on you know it like we were able to like impact it and get it to that point and that was the value and so am i do i miss it i got I miss the early parts. I'm I'm happy to be doing that again. Am I excited for the company? And do I have like firm belief as a shareholder that <laughs> you need to crush it? I, I absolutely do. Like we built something that changed the world and is going to continue to and like is still willing to even at this advanced stage take risks, like launch into new um, new regions, new lines of business. Uh, we have an amazing team currently working. I, I think Dara is is a fantastic, um, fantastic leader and is well positioned to like continue to take us up and to the right. So, that being said, I I try to think about it as little as possible, and I'm just really happy focusing on this right now. Awesome, awesome. And were were you guys able to uh, like self fund this business? Oh, no, we, we raised a small uh, angel yeah. round just to get it off the ground. Um, you know, I'd say friends and family, you know, a strong cohort of some of the early Uber uh, colleagues that, you know, had respect for me and that I had probably a lot more respect for. So I, I mm -hmm. felt very honored and privileged to be able to like, engage them, show them what we're doing and see that they, they believed in it. But, um, 
yeah, and then like I, I definitely put some in myself just to to put some skin in the game because I believe in what we're doing. Awesome. Uh, there you guys have it. Uh, I'll, I'll hand it over to you for, for one last thing. For everyone out there who uh, is really interested in, um, in investing in small businesses who might want to reach out to you guys personally, where's the best place that they can uh, find what you guys are doing, see what you guys are doing, and, and connect with you? I mean, it's pretty easy when, you, when you're a small team. If you, if you want to talk to us, like just our first names at mainvest.com. <laughs> reach out and we'd be more than happy to anyone that's interested like have a conversation and talk about what we're doing uh but yeah like mainvest.com um you know if, if you sign up which obviously is like pretty easy to do i'm sure people yeah it took a like a couple seconds a couple seconds um you know you you get the emails notifications when new offerings come live i think that's kind of like the biggest value proposition for signing up even if you don't have the intent to invest is being first to know about a new opportunity that's coming to the area that could be relevant to you. Uh, but yeah, I mean, shoot us an email. That's, that's the easiest way. And you know, we'll always find the time. All right. Great. Thank you guys so much. Um, this is super informative. Uh, and I really appreciate you, you guys, uh, coming on excited for Mainvest to come to New York. Oh, absolutely. Awesome. Thank you. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, go rate and subscribe to the podcast. Even share it with your friends if you found the lessons valuable. We do the show every week, so stay tuned for more episodes. And till next time.